Well, as we've already said, today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the theme being love. Love is uh, one of those topics I actually find a bit difficult to write on because we talk about love all the time, right? In fact, when I told Cindy that I was having a hard time, my wife works in Akita, and I was telling her I have a hard time this week writing about love because we talk about love all the time. And she, you know, she's my lovely wife. She very lovingly said, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> Tried chasing around a bunch of kids all hopped up on Christmas candy. So she didn't say that. She would never say that. But it does bring about one of the aspects of love. And really, we are going to talk about it. And this morning thing, totally planned by God, not me. Because we are talking about empathy. Because empathy is a very important part of love. Empathy is that part that allows us to enter into what a person is feeling and feel it with them. Without empathy, a lot of times we get that kind of cold sense of being told, I understand, but you can see in their faces or their actions, they don't understand. Or they'll say, I sympathize with you, but sympathy... Sympathy is good, but it doesn't feel. Sympathy says, yeah, I can understand this is a bad situation. But empathy feels with you. And why is empathy important? Why is empathy an important part of love? Well, it's because empathy is that part that if we, don't, if we, if we have empathy and we enter into an empathetic type of feeling with someone, especially if they're doing something that we don't agree with, Empathy allows us to be a little bit ju less judgmental because it helps us understand where they're coming from. Even if we don't agree with it, at least we can understand a little bit. And when I counsel couples, one of the things that I often run into when I do counsel coupling is that as communication tends to break down, most of the times when people need counseling is because communication is broken down at some point. And when communication breaks down, very often there's a lack of empathy. Because if you can't communicate what you're feeling to someone, then you can't really feel it with them. Or if you can't hear what they're communicating, you've just decided that what they're saying is nonsense. Or what they're saying, you know, you just don't want to deal with it anymore. Then you stop being able to really enter into where they're at. And you don't really feel it with them. If you've been around me at all, like whenever we I talk about conflict or whenever I talk about counseling, marital issues, I often tell a story about when I was early, early in my pastoral journey, like the second year in, which would have made me maybe 30, 31. I started pastoring full-time when I was 29. There was a couple that came in, and they were quite a bit older than me. They were probably 20 years older than me. And they had been married about that long, too, a little over 20 years. And they came in for counseling. And he wasn't much of a talker. He was a, he was a farmer. And when he did talk, it tended to be very just kind of straight to the point. It was just about information. This is what you need to know. This is all I'm going to say. It was just the way he was. And when you talked to him about anything, he was like this with everyone. He wasn't like this just toward his wife. He wasn't like this just toward people in the church. He was like this toward everyone. He would just, when, when he would talk, and that was a rarity, it would just be to give information. And it wasn't very warm. There wasn't a lot of personality involved. And they had been married, like I said, over 20 years. And 
Something big had happened to bring him into the willingness to even be in my office. But he was clearly just tolerating this counseling idea. He wasn't participating in it. He was tolerating it. She was the one that wanted to participate in it. And so they were talking for a while. And she said things like, you never talk to me. You never really talk to me. And he would say things in response like, well, when I have something to talk about, I talk to you. And then finally, she got frustrated, and as a long course of conversation, she looked at him, she goes, you never tell me that you love me. And he kind of snapped his head back and kind of rolled his eyes. You could tell he'd probably heard this before, and he said, when we got married, I told you that I loved you. And if anything changes, I'll be sure to let you know. Now, I've told that story often over the years, partly because it illustrates how women, men and women seek very different things when it comes to communication and relationship. Women, in general, tend to communicate for relationship's sake. Men, in general, do tend to communicate for information's sake. And that's okay, but at some point, these two spheres need to overlap at least a little bit. If there's going to be a good communication between a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman. And of course, there's a spectrum. Some guys are way on the communication end. Some women are way on the relationship edge. And it can be kind of, it can move along the spectrum. But generally, this is the case. And a lot of us laugh when we hear that little exchange. But if you consider the words carefully, you think about what she said and what he said in response. To not hear from your spouse for years, a fact which he confirmed, he did not deny. To not hear from your spouse for years that you were loved had to be heartbreaking for her. And that cold silence around love started as a little pinprick of sadness early in the marriage. But she tried to ignore it. To focus on his good points, he was steady, he was a hard worker, he wasn't prone to violence, he wasn't really prone to any emotion. And she knew that, he, that she had grown up with an abusive father. She knew what it was like to be around abusive people. So when she went to her mother and went to her sister to talk about this relationship she was in, they weren't very sympathetic because they said, hey, it could be worse. It was worse for us. Your dad was very abusive, not just verbally, but physically as well. So they told her, be happy with what you've got. Be happy with your stoic, silent, steady husband. And when they had arguments, when her and her husband had arguments, and she would bring up the question, do you even love me? He would roll his eyes and say, this is a stupid question. And so they had kids, like a lot of couples do, thinking that's going to make things better. They had kids. And for a while, she found the reciprocity of love of a child to a mother. It was a little bit of a substitute for that ache in her heart. But it wasn't the same as being told by her husband that she was loved. And when the kids became teenagers and got to be a little bit difficult, she found herself again in that place of never hearing anyone tell her, that she was loved. 
Now, she would go to church, and the churches would tell her that God loved her. But she could never really connect with anybody in the church because her husband, who would reluctantly come along to church, but he did come, he would always find some reason not to like the church they were in. Very often, he didn't like the pastors. He said, these are a bunch of soft-handed, holier-than-thou, spiritual charlatans who've never done any hard day's work. Why should I listen to him? And so they would go from church to church to church. And she never was able to form these deep relationships where she could hear from someone other than a philosophical sense of love. And so she found it hard to be intimate with the man that she didn't feel loved by. And she began to withdraw from him physically. And then one day she was in the barn trying to clean up some stuff. She found a whole stash of pornography. And this is what brought them to marriage counseling. Because she was going to leave. She said, I've had it. She was angry. She was hurt. She was ashamed. She was guilty. She had all these, all these emotions going on at the same time. So she brought them to marriage counseling. And he reluctantly came to counseling because of the threat to leave him. And he didn't want that. Because he had been left a lot in his life. See, when he was young, his father was a drunk. And when he was just about six, seven years old, he had two younger brothers. His father left the family, just left. They never had any idea where he was. He just left. And he left his mother to take care of him and his brothers. And she tried her best for a while, and she eventually remarried. But the guy that she remarried was a jealous man. And he was jealous of her relationship with her children. And so, to try and make him happy, she had a couple more kids with his stepfather. And when she had kids with his stepfather, his stepfather made sure that the kids that he had with his wife were the ones that he gave everything to. The ones that he gave attention to. The ones he made sure had birthday presents and Christmas presents. The others from the first marriage, he ignored. And he made it very clear to him and to his brothers that they weren't welcome in the family. And as soon as it was possible for them to leave, they should. And so this man that was in counseling, he did leave. He left his family when he was 17 years old. And he never was invited back for any reason was never invited back for birthdays, was never invited back for Thanksgiving, which is a big, big deal in the States, was never invited back for Christmas. He was never invited back. And when I was speaking with him, he didn't even know if his mother was still living. He hadn't heard from her for decades. So he went out into the world on his own, no support, no one around him. Everyone that was supposed to have been there for him were gone. His father left. His mother shut off and pushed her, put herself towards his stepfather. And he decided he wanted to be a farmer. And he didn't have any inheritance to be a farmer, which in the U.S. is almost impossible. 99% of your farmers, probably more than that, inherit something in order to get started. Because it is very difficult just to go out, buy land, buy machinery, and start being a farmer. But he did it. He started and he worked his fingers to the bone. He slowly tore down his bodies over the, over the years. But he was steady and he worked hard. He went out to the field before the sun came up. He came home after the sun went down. 
And he could not comprehend how his wife could question his love when every day he got up before the sun was up and every day he came home when the sun went down. And he worked and worked and worked. He worked through injury. He worked through the weather. He gave his life. And so when she questioned his love, when she cried about it, he resented it. How can she not see that he loved her? And he wasn't about just to say some words because someone asked him to. He felt he had proven it. And he had no plans to ever leave her because he had been left enough. And so when she began to withdraw, well, he'd been left before. And he knew that the way you survived being left is that you just buckled down, kept your eyes forward on what you needed to do, and you shut out the pain. And so when she began to withdraw, he'd been down this road before. And he shut down, kept his eyes forward on what he had to do on the farm, and kept out the pain. And when he got caught with all this pornography, he was ashamed to have been caught with it, but he didn't really feel like there was anything wrong with it because it was just pictures. There's no relationship. It was just pictures. So now knowing this, when you hear this exchange, you never tell me you love me. Followed by, when we were married, I told you that I loved you. And when it changes, I'll let you know. Now how does that feel? It feels different, doesn't it? It's a lonely, broken, deeply sad place for both of them to be in. And some of you right now are feeling this story very, very deeply. That's empathy. You've entered into the story and you feel it. You feel her. You feel him. You feel this little exchange, which in one context is easy to kind of laugh about. But in the full context, it becomes tragic. And you want to go into that story, some of you. Now, some of you are still kind of trying to figure out, well, what's supposed to be the big deal here? Some of you struggle with empathy. That's okay. But some of you want to get into this story and find a solution for them. Right now you're thinking what you could do. What could we do for them? What could I do for them if I was in that situation? You want to get in there and you want to find a solution. That's empathy. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible comes from John 3.16. And this is 16 and 17. It says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, many of us have learned these verses early in our faith. Some of you may have even known them before you were a Christian. But what do these verses really mean? Why would love compel God to give us his son? Why would the Christ, the Messiah, enter into our brokenness, enter into our darkness, into our lonely separation from our creator God? 
And to be clear, God, did not, God the Father did not send the Son to do the dirty work for him. I've had people tell me that. God the Father is kind of a jerk because he sent Jesus to do all the hard work. And what they don't understand is that Jesus is the very character and nature of God among us. The incarnation is the very word of God, the very creative nature of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. I understand it's hard for us to get our heads around, but that's what it is. It's not as though God is kind of standing separate and say, boy, you go do the hard work. No, it's really him. It's his character and nature becoming flesh. And the Apostle Paul tries to explain this mystery when he's talking to the church in Philippi about being a servant. And we quote this verse a lot uh, here at IBCD. He says to them, your attitude about servanthood should be the same as that as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't have to grasp before because he already had it. But made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God enters into our brokenness. He enters into what it means to be a human being. And he does it because he has an empathy. His love isn't just one that says, I have warm, fuzzy feelings about you. It's one that enters into it, seeking a solution for those whom he loves for those for whom his heart beats. And if you go into the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews gets into this even more. We'll probably do Hebrews after we go get down with Galatians, go to the Old Testament, come back to the New Testament. But he says this. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, speaking of human beings, he too, being the Messiah, he too shared in their humanity. Hear that? He shared in their humanity. He wasn't just appearing and faking it. He was sharing it, which means he shares the, the difficulties. He shares even the temptation, which we'll look at. He goes, he shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's us he's talking about, human beings who for all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And he's very specific here to say Abraham's descendants because that includes everybody, Jews as well as non-Jews. He doesn't say Moses' descendants, Abraham's descendants. For this reason... He had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. There's an empathy because he himself suffered when he was being tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted because why? He understands. He understands it because he entered into it and he felt it with us. Hebrews goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest, again speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Why are we able to approach the throne with confidence? Because we have a God who understands why we're approaching. We have a God who understands when we come and we have fallen into that temptation or we gave into it. It's not as though he goes, well, I don't understand where you're coming from. He does understand. He understands. He never gave into it, but he understands it. And because he understands it, when we approach him, he's not other than us like saying, well, I just don't get why you, had to, why you did this. He understands it because he was there with us. It's like finding someone who's a thief, and all you know about this person is they're a thief. They stole a bunch of stuff from people. They're a thief. And we get angry with them. Yeah, it's just too lazy to work. He just wants to steal things from people. He's a thief. And we find out his children are desperately sick. The doctor has said, I can have this medicine. I can give them to you, give it to you, and it'll cure your child, but this is what it costs, and he doesn't have the money for it. And he can't get the money for it. No one will give him the money for it. So he went out and he stole for it. Now you think about him a little bit different, don't you? God understands you because he understands what it means to be you. And there's a lot to unpack in these verses. When we go through the book of Hebrews, we'll get into it. But understanding these sins, understanding who we are, understanding our brokenness. God empathizes with us. He understands us. And because of that, we can approach him. And if you've ever been afraid to approach God because you get told things like, well, you know, he's too holy to be in your presence, or how dare you come to God with these things, that is not what the scripture says. Sometimes that might be what you've heard from the church, but it's not what the scripture says. The scripture says you can approach him with confidence because he understands you. We have a high priest who acts in that place, the priest, to bring us into this relationship with the Father, who understands us. And the incarnation is really what we celebrate this week. The incarnation is the ultimate kind of expression of God entering into our darkness, entering into our brokenness, entering into that fear of death, because he says, you know, we were slaves to the fear of death. He enters into it. And when he enters into it, he understands what he's doing. For example, he understands it's a big ask. For this woman, this young lady, probably still a teenager, Mary, to bear the Christ child. Because as much as we think, oh, we still venerate Mary because she bore the Christ child in her village at the time. To have to go and tell a bunch of folks, I'm pregnant. And God did it. That would be a tough sell today. In her time, it could also have been a death sentence. When he goes to Joseph and tells Joseph in a dream, hey, you should take Mary as your wife. What's happened, or the angel says this to him, what's happened is of God, God knows that for Joseph, he's putting himself into this place of everyone who knows him. It's laughing at him. For foolishly believing Mary, that God made her pregnant. 
He knows that when he was incarnated as a, as a baby, when he comes as a child in a manger, that this, is, this makes him vulnerable. This makes him vulnerable to death. This makes him vulnerable to all the childhood diseases. It makes him vulnerable. But if he's going to be our high priest who understands and empathizes with everything it means to be a human being, he has to take the long walk from birth to death. And that's what he does. He enters into our humanity. And when he's on the cross, when he's in the garden and he's praying, and God the Father and God the Son, this thing that we will never really understand where the Father, in a sense, turns his back upon himself. Jesus goes through this horrible thing where he becomes sin. He who knew no sin becomes sin for us. And in a sense, he has this disconnection with himself and he cries out. This is a big ask, but he does it for us. And so he knows when you come to him, and you come to him that he knows that you're concerned about, well, what your plans are for your life. He knows that you're concerned about what your dreams are for your life. He knows that to follow him as Lord feels like to you it is asking a lot. He knows that. Because he, as the son, follows the will of the father all the way to the cross. He knows it can feel like a lot. But this is where trust and faith all, and belief kind of all morph into the same thing. Do you trust God? Do you believe that he loves you? Do you believe that his plan for you is a plan that you can trust? And it might not look like the way we like to think things should lay out from this point of view, from this life, from this place. But do you trust him that what he has is best? This is the incarnation. This is the result of the incarnation that we can be in this place where we can lean upon the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as God telling us, I understand. I understand you because I've lived you. And so then the question comes to us, do we really understand what God has done for us? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This love is expressed in the incarnation. It's not just words for God. He understands you. Do you understand him? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this season where we celebrate you're the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And it is certainly a mystery. And yet it's the event which has changed the course of human history. And has changed the course of lives, many of whom are here today who can say, yeah, 
My life is changed because of what God has done. And Lord, I pray for those who might be here today that don't know that, that don't, that have just kind of read that you love the world as kind of a, almost a platitude. Just like a, yeah, yeah, of course he loves the world, whatever, he's God. But to understand that it's more than that. That he has entered into who we are. And by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And God, that he has our best interest in mind, that we can trust him. And Lord, as we pray that, we pray that knowing that we have people whose lives are turned upside down by war during this time of year. We have people whose lives are lives of physical suffering, even within our own body. And we pray for those who are sick. Lord, we, we from our point of view, this is the only life that we can say we know for now. And so it's hard for us to think, okay, well, there's something better in eternity. This is, this is what we know. And you healed those before, and we pray that you would do so again. But we do know that regardless of people being healed or not, one day we're all going to die and stand before you. And Lord, we pray that if anyone here is still a slave to the fear of death, that they would turn their eyes to you and see that you are the conqueror of sin and death. That's the whole point of the cross and resurrection. And so, Father, we do ask that as we head into the end of this year, into the next year, may we be an empathetic people. Help us to try and understand each other and those outside. Try to understand, as you did, the woman caught in adultery. Try to understand, as you did, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Try and understand, as you did, you know, the woman that came and washed your feet with her hair and tears. That you would try, uh, we would try and understand, as you did, Peter, when he failed you. And may we not ever get to the place of utter discouragement like Judas did, where we take our own life without first turning to you and saying, can you understand? And as we go into the rest of this day, uh, Christmas Eve, and go into tomorrow, a time of celebration, and for many people, joy and family, God, may we be mindful that it's not just about the presence that you give us, and that we give each other, and that it's not just about even the gifts that you've given us, but it's about the fact that you know us, and you've made it possible for us to know you through your Holy Spirit. May we lean into that hard and love you. Love you, try to understand you the way you've loved and understood us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.